Well, I invite you to join me in the book of Daniel. If you would join me in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2 is where we are going to begin this morning. We've had an amazing time working through idols in our hearts. Um, We started in um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. We started by looking at how we are supposed to run. We need to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how we do that is by listening to the witnesses, laying aside the encumbrances, and fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the how. And as we studied that, we realized, you know what, we need to stare seriously at the encumbrances, the good things that become bad things when we turn them into God things, to supreme things. We need to look at those clearly. We need to focus on those and throw them away and replace them with fixing our eyes on Jesus and Jesus alone. We spent a little bit of time introducing this concept biblically of idols in the heart. And then we started by looking at specifically the idol of money, the idol of greed. We looked at the rich young ruler. We looked at the rich old ruler in Zacchaeus. Then we were able to look last week at the idol of love, the idol of affection, the idol of being desired and being cared for. We looked at that in Genesis 29 with Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, and Laban. This morning I want to look at the idol of glory. I think I titled it the idol of glory in your uh, bulletins. I think it's there. Um, This is the original title. The idol of success and power, achievements and accomplishments, fame, pride, and control. So I, I summed all that up to say glory. But really what we're going to see is the idols of being in control of something. The idol of having success. The idol of being famous. The idol of having power. The idol of what you can do and accomplish on your own. The idol of the achievements that you can see as you look around yourself. The idol of taking to yourself glory, which we know inherently is wrong. We see that in the book of Acts when King Herod hears the praises of the people when they say, it is the voice of a God and not a man. And instead of saying, no, you're wrong, I'm just a man, I'm not a God, he says, yes, you're right, keep telling me my praises. I'm a God, give me glory. And it says that an angel of the Lord struck him down immediately and his body was devoured by worms because he did not give glory to God. We all love our own glory. And ultimately, our own glory is one of the greatest competitors in our hearts with God himself. It's an enormous idol. That's why it's far-reaching and encompasses a lot of different ways to describe it. We're going to look at two individuals in God's word, as as we have before, as we've kind of looked at um, character sketches, narratives that describe these people that struggle with these idols. We're going to do the same this morning. We're going to look at two men that struggle with these idols, an idol of power or fame or control or success, ultimately an idol of glory. And as we kind of look at their narratives, we're going to see the symptoms of fame, of success being an idol. And we're going to see what happens when you start loving yourself and loving the idols of your own heart and your own glory. And we're going to ultimately see how to get rid of those idols. Ultimately, we all struggle with a certain sense of feeling dependent. We don't like that. We want to be independent. We feel powerless when we realize we cannot give ourselves breath. We cannot keep our hearts beating. We don't like that feeling. So many people know that, they see it, they sense it, and there are two main responses when you realize, I am powerless in this world. Number one, you can just kind of go belly up and say, fine, I'm fatalistically just going to let whatever happens happen. Or you can seek to control every single aspect of your life and say, no, 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 I am independent of anybody else. I'm going to control. I'm going to be the God of my own life. I'm going to make things work and happen the way I want them to. Obviously, there is a middle ground. There is a third response, and it's to humbly admit our own frailty and find our glory in Jesus Christ and in him alone. But the two men that we're going to look at this morning really struggled with taking control of their own lives, finding their own successes to be their uh, indicators of how amazing they are, believing their own press clippings, 
Usually we aren't prone to humbly admitting our own frailty. We don't like that. We like to be in control. And all the little things we are in control of, we like to point other people to and say, look, see, I'm in control. Look at what I can do. Even the original temptation in the Garden of Eden. Remember in Genesis chapter 2, the original temptation was pretty much just resent the limitations that God has placed upon you. Resent those limitations. He said, you shall not eat of the tree, so forget that and be your own God. Eat of the tree and blow away all of his limitations that he set. Be your own God. Take power to yourself. And ultimately, we know that's just truly an illusion to say we have power. It's an illusion. But our culture buys into this. Can I give you some quotes from some theologians of our day? A man by the name of Ice-T, African-American rapper slash musical artist, says this. Pride is mandatory. That's one of the problems in the inner city today, a lack of pride and self-sufficiency. Um, I think that's the majority of the world today. You need to have pride. You need to be self-sufficient. Kirstie Alley, another amazing theologian, she said, I don't think pride is a sin, and I think some idiot made that up. Well, we're not allowed to say idiot in our home. (laughs) But I think that she, in her foolishness, would say, God must be an idiot And I don't want to believe him and follow him because he claims that having pride is a sin. That's that's idiotic. No, pride is a sin. It is wrong. God says that in the Bible, in the New Testament, specifically the word for pride in the Greek literally means to show oneself above. To show yourself above. As you're looking up at God or anybody else, as I'm looking up at somebody and I say, you know what, you're better than me. Ultimately, what we're saying is I want to be better than you. Show myself above you, go over you and look down on you. Ultimately, we do that with God. We say in our own self-sufficiency, God, I want to show myself above you and put you in your place. Let me be on the throne of the universe and the galaxies. I want to be in control. It is a fleeting illusion. Thus far, we've seen the idol of money, the idol of love, and we're going to see the idol of glory here. And all three of those idols we've looked at in the grid work of you love your idol, you trust your idol, and you obey whatever it is that you idolize. And we will see that even this morning in these two men. So first, Daniel chapter 2, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. We are going to look at his idol of control, of power, of success, of achievements, and of his own glory. Nebuchadnezzar, you remember in the 6th century before Jesus, the Babylonian Empire had risen to displace Assyria and Egypt as the dominant world power in the day. Soon it invaded Judah, captured Jerusalem, took over all of the people, all of the citizens in Jerusalem, deported them to Babylon, including some of the most well-known people in the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, all um, exiled into Babylon. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar became king over the known world. He is the highest power in the known world. He has it all. He owns it all. And yet, as we heard this morning in Family Bible Hour from um, Tom Brady, having it all does not make you satisfied. It doesn't. And we're going to see that even here with King Nebuchadnezzar. He has it all, and yet he still does not have enough. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in, they stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. This man has it all. He owns it all. But just like everyone else who would own so much, he's afraid to lose it. And as we know about this dream, this dream is a dream of a statue made of gold and all these different metals. And um, a rock is going to come in and smash the idol, the statue. It's going to break it apart. And Nebuchadnezzar must be wondering, okay, wait, is this a representation of my kingdom? Is this a representation of me? 
I'm afraid to lose what power I have. Just think about it. The way he gained power is by somebody owning control of a country and him coming in and saying, I'm going to kill you and take control of it. So if that's how you can gain power, surely somebody else can do that to him. When you have fame, when you have successes, when you have achievements and power and control, what comes with it is a fear of losing all that you have. A fear of losing it and an anxiety. That's why he says, I'm anxious twice. I'm anxious. My spirit is troubled within me. You become the object and of everyone's jealousy and envy. You become somebody that everyone looks to and says, I wish I was there. And so you become fearful and anxious. If you remember a man by the name of Bernie Madoff, he was sentenced to 150 years in prison for running a $65 billion Ponzi scheme. When he was sentenced, he publicly blamed his own pride. At some time in the past, he had faced a year in which he should have reported significant losses, but he could not, quote, admit his own failures as a money manager. He said, my pride is the problem because I couldn't admit that I was failing. If I would have admitted that, I wouldn't be involved in what I'm involved in. But instead, he could not accept the loss of power and reputation that such an admission would bring. Once he began to hide those weaknesses through his Ponzi scheme, he couldn't then, quote, admit his own judgment in error while the scheme grew, always thinking he could work his way out. He just kept on saying, no, that wasn't an error, and I'll justify it, and I'll rationalize it, and I'll get everything back on track. I'm not going to lose what I have. And people that wind up with a lot of successes or with a lot of power or control or influence become scared to lose what they have gained. We see that all around the world in our day, and we see it here with King Nebuchadnezzar. Power and success are often born out of fear and therefore in turn give birth to more fear and anxiety. That's one of the reasons why King Nebuchadnezzar is so specific in the way that he speaks to his soothsayers. In verse 4, the Chaldeans speak to the king and they say, Okay, please live forever. You are a king, but tell us the dream and we will interpret it. Seems reasonable. King Nebuchadnezzar says, I had a dream and I'm scared of it. And they say, Cool, we will interpret it. Just tell it to us. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, No. You tell me what my dream was and you tell me the interpretation of that dream. This is a beautiful picture of someone who is paranoid. I desperately want to reign supreme, and I'm afraid that this dream might show that I'm going to lose my kingdom. I don't want to lose my kingdom. And so the only people that have a right to speak to me, the God of this universe that I've built up for myself, the only people that have the right to speak to me are people who are on the same level, people who are equally as powerful and successful. I don't want to talk to riffraff. I don't want to talk to somebody who needs me to tell them the dream. You should know on your own. And if you don't, you're not worthy of speaking to me. He goes so far as to say, if you can't tell me what my dream was, then you aren't worthy to live. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 13, because they say, I'm sorry, king. You are a great king. We love you, king. Don't kill us, king. But we can't do what you're asking. That is unreasonable. And he says, okay, fine. Verse 13, a decree goes forth that the wise men should be slain. And they looked for Daniel and his friends because they are part of the wise man clan to kill them. To kill them. Then, verse 14, Daniel replied with discretion and discernment. What an amazing two words to describe his response. Discretion and discernment. He doesn't just say, oh, I don't want to die. He, in essence, says, you know what? None of us can figure out this dream, but God can. Because God's greater than Nebuchadnezzar. God can prove himself greater than Nebuchadnezzar. God can do it. Let's let God do it. Let's let God do it. Verse 19. The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Daniel blesses God. He says, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. Wisdom and power don't belong to me or to Nebuchadnezzar or to any human. They belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. It's God who does it. We are all just pawns in his hands. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. 
It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. All these soothsayers couldn't figure it out. Of course they couldn't because he alone knows these things. Verse 23, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. You've given it to me, but it's yours. I don't have it inherently. I'm not amazing of my own power. What Nebuchadnezzar asks these magicians to do is impossible without the work of God in their lives. And Daniel knows that. He says, I want to speak the message to the king so that he would realize there is a God greater than him. There's a God greater than Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, Daniel goes in, speaks to um, the headmaster here, the, the man, Arioch, um, and Daniel goes into Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar, as he's sitting there waiting for his magicians to come in, his wise men, is wondering on his own, what could this statue represent? What could this dream mean? Maybe he's fearful and anxious because the statue might have looked like him. We don't know. At least he thought maybe it's a representation of how awesome he was, but then again, there's this rock that comes in and destroys his awesomeness. He doesn't want to lose his power and his fame and his glory, and so he's waiting for Daniel to come speak to him. Ultimately, what this dream is about is a call to humility. It's a call to remind Nebuchadnezzar, no, you do not have control. God is in control of your kingdom. God was in control of all of the kingdoms to come, all the kingdoms in the past. God's in control of everything. Babylon is that top portion of the statue, and as you go down, you have all of the kingdoms that come, Medo-Persia, Greece, um, Rome, and God destroys all of them. God owns them all. Ultimately, God is calling Nebuchadnezzar, stay humble. Your human power is granted to you by God, and it's going to crumble just like all human powers do. Stay humble. Nebuchadnezzar needed to hear the words that Paul writes in Romans 13, that the government has been established by God, wicked or otherwise. God has established the people who are in power and granted them that power. And when he says so, that power will be taken away. No person in power is there on, by their own doing. Nebuchadnezzar is ultimately in this dream being asked to change his concept of who God is and of who he is in light of God. If you jump down, Daniel describes the dream. We won't read it for sake of time. Uh, he interprets everything. And what happens in the end? Verse 46. King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, and he did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant infants. So on the one hand, it's really cool that Nebuchadnezzar is saying, thank you so much. But on the other hand, you can see what's happening in his mind and his heart. He said, I want somebody to tell me what my dream was. Put somebody on par with my awesomeness. I want to see somebody who is equally as in control. And so when Daniel seems to do that, Nebuchadnezzar says, you are awesome, right? He thanks him and he praises him. He does homage to him. He worships Daniel, not Daniel's God. He offers him an offering and a fragrant incense. This is what should be given to God alone. But Nebuchadnezzar is saying, you are equally a God in my mind. Then, verse 47, the king answered Daniel and said, yes, your God is awesome. He is a God of gods. He is the Lord of kings. He is a revealer of mysteries. Um, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. He's a great God, but you're the one that revealed it. You're the one that did it. And so, verse 48, the king pro promoted Daniel and gave him the many great gifts and made him a ruler of the whole province of Babylon chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. It seems like Nebuchadnezzar kind of gets it. Okay, there's somebody more important than me. There's somebody greater than me. Or maybe he's on par. But the reality is he doesn't get it. And we know that based on verse 1 of chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon and says, you know what, worship that image. But he doesn't get it, ultimately. He doesn't get it. He still thinks, you know what, I'm awesome. You know what, I do have control. And now here's a man who is also representative of amazing success and control. But his pride is his undoing. His pride is his undoing. You guys know the story of the fiery furnace, the story of um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know that. You know, obviously, Nebuchadnezzar is not getting it. At the end of that, when they are found to be alive and there's a fourth person in the furnace... 
Nebuchadnezzar says again, surely there's a God who can protect you. This is amazing. Let's worship him. But he still doesn't get it. Chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 11, he has another dream. This dream is about a tree. Uh, Verse 11 of chapter 4, the tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. All living creatures fed themselves from it. This is an interesting dream. What's this one going to be about? He knows who to turn to. He turns to Daniel, says, please help me interpret this dream. Drop down to verse 24. This is the interpretation of the dream, O king. This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. That's it. This tree that is your beautiful kingdom, you're trusting in your successes, and God's going to come and chop it down. If you do not repent, if you do not humble yourself, what's going to happen? I think, at least for me, I would think it would be an easy thing to humble myself once I hear God say, do this or else I will destroy you. (laughs) But in there lies the reality of how wicked our pride truly is. Nebuchadnezzar hears from God, ultimately, if you do not humble yourself, your kingdom will be taken away. Everything that you've trusted in will be removed and you'll be proven to be a fraud, a fake, just like every other human who thinks that they have control and power. Nebuchadnezzar says, no. Verse 28, all this happened in Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, so it's been a year, maybe a month later, he decided, you know what, I should repent. Maybe three months later, he decides, you know what, I should repent and be humble and humble myself. But twelve months pass, and he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built? as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. That is a very pregnant sentence filled with a bunch of condemning statements. He just heard God say a year earlier that it is the Most High who is ruler over the realms of mankind and the Most High bestows it, command of those realms, on whomever he wishes. It's not you. And yet he defiantly says, I myself have built by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. Oh, you had it. It was a gift. And now it's been taken away. And you, verse 32, will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. That's a repeat of what was just said, but now it's actually happening. Immediately, verse 33. The word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. He instantly becomes a monster because of his incredibly monstrous heart. He instantly becomes exactly what he was worshiping. Pride is an ugly monster reeling its ugly head, and we become what we worship. And so he becomes this terrible beast in the field, totally lost all of his power, all of his control, all of his dignity. The first dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of the statue was, in a sense, a more academic lesson. You have a kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, and that kingdom was given to you. This is a much more personal dream. This is a much more personal lesson. You, King Nebuchadnezzar, you think you have glory. You think you have success. You think you have achievements, but it's not you. It's God. The first dream was asking him to change his perspective about how he received all of his kingdoms and his successes. The second dream is asking him 
to stop enjoying the successes on his own and taking glory to himself because he didn't manufacture any of it. One commentator says it this way, the first time God was getting his attention saying, the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. And you must understand that your power has been given to you by grace from God. If you knew that, you would be both more relaxed and secure and more humble and just. But if you think you earned your position through your own merit and works, you will continue to be both scared, anxious, cruel, and unjust. He's not getting the lesson, and that's why he turns into this terrible beast. What happens to him ultimately? The ending is pretty amazing. Verse 34, I think he gets it at the end of that period. I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is him writing these words now, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High. No, I'm not blessing Daniel. I'm blessing God. And I praised and honored him before he had blessed and praised and honored Daniel, but now he's praising and honoring God who lives forever. Why? Because his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. I am nothing. I'm an inhabitant of the earth and I am nothing. He used to say, I'm God of the known world. And now he's saying, I'm nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand. No one can say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me. And my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. But in all of those things, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all of his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He stared at all of his own achievements. One artist says it this way. History is full of man's achievements, but frail are these ventures at their very best. While we toast our success, you, O God, create another day. (laughs) We say, oh, look at all my kings, all my lands, and God creates a day. And he says, oh, I can see how you might be amused. Oh, we, we look at the things that we have done and we have made and we say, oh, look at how awesome we are. And God says, yeah, I'll just make the sun rise and the sun set. Oh, no big thing for me. We need to hear the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Who makes you different from anyone else? Are you different from somebody else? Are you in a greater position of power? Do you have more intelligence? Do you have more success? Who makes you that way? What do you have that you did not receive? So he's talking about who makes it that way. God does. He gave you that gift. So if you did receive it, if it wasn't something you earned, then why do you boast as though you didn't receive it, but you earned it? Why do you boast that way? Nebuchadnezzar had taken personal credit for his rise to prominence, so now he is utterly humiliated because of his own pride. All of this should point us, and we're going to see Jesus in all of these things, but all of this should point us back to Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar said, look, I will ascend to the Most High. I'm an amazing, awesome man, and look at my glory. And he was humbled for it. Jesus, who is ascended at the right hand of the Most High, Son of God, says, I will descend, I will condescend, and I will become a lowly human, and he is exalted. And that's the pattern. That is the pattern for us. If you want to be exalted, humble yourself. If you want to be humiliated, exalt yourself. The way up is down. The way down is up. British poet W.E. Henley, who wrote the Invictus poem, which is Latin for unconquered, said this, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my soul. Doesn't the world applaud things like that? Go get them. Have greater self-esteem in yourself. Have greater confidence and pride. You can do it. All you need to do is love yourself more, trust in yourself more, have confidence in yourself more. And God says, no, the person who does that, I will humiliate. I will humiliate. I will turn you into a monster because of your pride. That's exactly what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And it always reminds me of a section in one of my favorite books in the Chronicles of Narnia. You remember 
Eustace in the voyage of the Don Shredder. Um, hates everybody around him. He's a little Nebuchadnezzar, really. Just thinks he's amazing, thinks he's all that. He's a bully, he's a brat. One night, as they're journeying around, he finds himself in an enormous cave that's full of treasure. He gets really excited. He wants to take it all in. He wants to be king. And he wants to show everybody, I have all this money. I'm not going to give it to you. And so he goes in. He takes a ring. He puts it on his arm. He sleeps on this pile of gold and treasure. And in the morning, he finds out he had been turned into a dragon. And C.S. Lewis so masterfully says it this way, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself, which is perfect. We become what it is that we worship. We love, trust, obey it. It masters us and we become those things. Eustace enjoys his power for a little while, ends up being lonely, unable to return the ship, can't continue on the journey with them. He gets very, very sad and decides, you know what, I need to turn back into a human. Maybe there's a human inside of this dragonish skin. Let me rip off my scales, rip off my skin so that the human can come back and I can return with my friends. He tries it, repeatedly cutting into his own skin, but he can't take the dragonish layer off. So Aslan, who is a representation of Jesus Christ, says it this way. You will have to let me undress you. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, and I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my own heart. When he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done many times to myself. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been, I turned into a boy again. So many times we look at our own sin and we decide, I'm going to get rid of it myself. We try to cut and we cut deeply, but it doesn't hit our hearts It doesn't hurt the way that God's breaking of our hearts does, the way that God's destroying of our sinful pride does. Even Nebuchadnezzar had thought, you know what, I'm praising God, I'm not a dragon anymore. And God finally showed him, no, I'm going to have to do this. I need to give you a new heart. I need to do that work. And so God does. And we never hear about Nebuchadnezzar again. In fact, his name only comes up two more times in this entire book. And it's just in passing to say, remember that kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar had? We're done with his story. We're done. A man who had everything, then lost everything, then remembered, I I have nothing, only that which God gives me. I have nothing. His achievements were his biggest idol, his fame, his glory. Nebuchadnezzar's story is a warning to us all about placing our significance in what we have done or what we can do. And that he's not alone. There are so many people in our culture that have the same feeling. I will only find meaning and purpose in life based on my achievements and successes and what I have done. Again, if you would allow me to quote from another very well-known pop culture theologian, a lady by the name of Madonna, she says this, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it, and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get into another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre that's always pushing me, pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. What a terrible way to live life. A performance treadmill where you're always saying, I wonder what people think of me. I wonder if my success is enough. I wonder if I am enough. When we think about Nebuchadnezzar, when we think about the other man that we're going to come into contact with, we think about how often we buy into the lie that we are what we've done. Who we are is just solely based on what we've done. Maybe we're never going to be Nebuchadnezzar, king of the whole world. I doubt any of us will be. But we can absolutely look at ourselves and say, I'm amazing because I'm an awesome parent. 
and place all of our stock in our parenting and our success in that world to give us our worth. Maybe we say, you know what, I'm an amazing businessman or businesswoman. I have done really well in my field of expertise. I've got it made, and because I have it made, because of what I've done now, I am satisfied, I'm successful, and those areas define us. Whatever it is, there are warning signs that it might be a struggle to you and to me that our own successes and our own pride and glory has become an idol. What are these signs? Well, number one, do you ever believe that you are secure? You have found security based on what you can do. You say, you know what? I have security based on what I can do. What I can do will get me places, and so I'm always secure based on what I can do. Successful people tend to be more shocked when bad things happen to them, when trouble comes. Unsuccessful people are fine with that. They kind of get ready for it. They're used to it. Yeah, this is life. But successful people say, um, I'm successful. I don't deserve what's happening here. Look at my glory. I shouldn't have bad things happen. Number two, maybe you have a distorted view of yourself. Maybe your achievements now serve as the basis for your own worth. And so they have become inflated way beyond what they really are. Maybe you're saying, you know what, I'm so awesome, and you look at what you can do, like Nebuchadnezzar did, and you say, there's nothing that can touch me. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Look at how amazing I am. Number three, another sign, another warning sign that your own glory and successes and achievements might be your greatest idol are when your mood changes with the ability to stay on top of your field. Is somebody doing better than you in your area of work? When you become envious of that, is somebody doing better than you in whatever it is that your area of success might be? When you become envious of that, your mood changes. You say, you know what, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do when I retire. I don't have anything to live for when I retire. Well, then we know it's become an idol. We know that. Let's meet the second individual that struggles with his own achievements. It's in Second Kings chapter 5. It's another man that you are well aware of in the Bible, a man by the name of Naaman. And in this account, we're going to find another man who was one of the most powerful men in the world at his time. And the writer of 2 Kings is going to tell us that, and he's going to stack it up so that we feel that. Look at verse 1, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, which is our modern-day Syria, was a great man. So he's captain of an army. He's a great man with his master. Um, chapter 5, verse 18 tells us that, um, the king of Syria would lean on the words and the advice of Naaman. So Naaman's pretty much the equivalent of a prime minister back then. He's second to the king here. He's highly respected because by him the Lord has given victory to Aram. So God did the work through Naaman. The man was also a valiant warrior. The writer is stacking all these things up. Look at how awesome this man is. And yet at the end of all of it, there's just a couple words that make us go, uh-oh. But he was a leper. Those words are included, but he was. Those words are italicized in my Bible because they're not there in the original. You want to see that contrast, but the contrast is there in the original Hebrew without those words. It would literally read all of these achievements that the Lord has given to him, and he's a valiant warrior and, by the way, a leper. That word Leprosy back then is similar to the way that we would feel about the word cancer. It's a death sentence except for the fact that this actually has no cure. Leprosy had no cure. If you had it, you were stuck with it and it would take your life. And it doesn't take your life in a very fun way either. Leprosy destroys the nerve endings in your body and so much so that you can't feel anything. And so you just start running into things. You don't have that warning sign that, oh, I shouldn't be touching the stove because it's hot. Oh, the, the coals in the fire have not um, calmed down and cooled down yet. They're still hot. And so you just pick things up and your flesh just starts falling off. Your fingers fall off. Your nose falls off. Your body literally falls apart. Here is Naaman who has everything together except his body is falling apart. What an amazing contrast. An amazing contrast. Now we also meet his slave girl, verse 2. The Arameans or the Syrians had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet 
who was in Samaria. That's Elisha. Then Elisha could cure him of his leprosy. First of all, this, this little girl's amazing. Just a side note. Um, she was taken from her home. She was destroyed, possibly had her parents killed in front of her. This is not a fun thing to be a slave girl. And yet, instead of saying, ha, I can watch my master die in misery. This will be great. This is God's judgment. Instead, she says, oh, I wish he could be healed. I mean, that's forgiveness in there, if I've ever seen forgiveness. Oh, I I still love you, even what you've done for me. I I still love you. So, verse 4, Naaman decides, I'm going to do this. He went in, told his master, saying, Thus and thus um, spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. And the king of Aram said, Go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed, and he took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. One of those things doesn't belong in that list. I I always read that. Ten talents of silver. That's about 750 pounds of silver. Six thousand shekels of gold. That's about 150 pounds of gold. And ten changes of clothes. That just, that turns my turtle because, especially it's tax season, that's, um, that's like a goodwill receipt, right? Ten, ten sets of clothes with all this amazing stuff. Look at how awesome this is. But what is Naaman trying to do here? There's some, it's something very profound to read about what he's trying to do. He's trying to buy his healing. He's prideful, he's successful, and he says, I should be healed based on what I have to offer. I can do this based on what I have been given, based on who I am. I have earned all of these things, and so what I have earned will buy my healing. He brings the letter to the king of Israel, verse 6, saying, Now has this letter come to you. Behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Who did the slave girl tell Naaman to go to? Go to the prophet of God. Go to Elisha. Who does Naaman go to? To the king. Similar to Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not speaking to a prophet. I'm speaking to somebody on my level. I'm speaking to somebody who's like me, and they will work. Maybe they'll call a slave prophet to them and do my bidding. I'm not talking to a prophet, a lowly prophet. Verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, I, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. The king of Israel is scared to death because he knows the way that God operates. And he also knows the way that the God of Syria operates. The God of Syria, if you work hard enough, he will bless you. That's not the way that the one true God operates. So he's saying, I don't know what to do. I I, I can't make him healed. I can't make him alive. I have no power to do that. He gets it. So Elisha comes on the scene. Verse 8. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me. Send him to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And by that he will know that God is the one true God. So Naaman came to to him with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. So he says, Okay, fine. I went to the king. King's not going to talk to me. I'm going to go to Elisha. Sends me to Elisha. Now who is he expecting to talk to? Elisha. But what happens? Verse 10, Elisha sends a messenger to him. I just love this. It's constantly, I'm hoping to speak to the king. Nope, go to the prophet. I'm hoping to speak to the prophet. No, talk to my servant. Always saying the lowliest person has all right in the world to talk to you. You're not better than him. And the messenger says, go, wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. Simple enough. But, huge contrast word there in verse 11, but Naaman was furious. Wow, that's a pretty big reaction to something so simple. That's a simple sentence. Hey, just go down to the Jordan, wash yourself seven times, you'll be clean. He's furious and he went away. Why? He says, behold, I thought he will surely come out to me. So number one, I have to talk to this lowly slave. Why won't anybody treat me like a king, like the king that I am? And number two, I thought he would call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. I thought he would do that. Simple. I paid him money. Here's the cash. Do what I ask of you. 
Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? I don't like this Jordan River. It's gross. It's dirty. It's muddy. It's nasty. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. And his servants came near. Again, I'm going to lump the little slave girl in there too. This could have easily been her chance to say, you know what? This is right. You are prideful and I'm not going to stop you and just die of leprosy. But she says, my father, treating him with compassion and with dignity, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? She's honing in on something huge here. Naaman says, here's all of my money, here's all of my treasures to buy my healing. Nope, that's not the way it's going to work. Okay, then at least let me do something to earn it. Give me a great quest to go on, and when I finally reach the quest's goal, I can be healed. Nope, that's not it. It's a simple, silly, broken, messed up thing that you have to do. Any child could do it. No, no, wait, I'm a king. I should, I should have a great task that is only fit for a king. No, no, no. Any little child, any little child can do it. He doesn't like that. If it had been a great thing, he would have gone on it and done it and with success been excited about earning his healing. But no. How much more than end of verse 13 when he says, do you wash and be clean? This is an easy thing. Can you please do this? This is an easy thing. So he went down. He dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. What a beautiful picture of salvation. Salvation is for anyone. It's not just for rich. It's not for powerful, successful people. It's not for just the good or just the strong. As one hymn says, lay down your deadly doing. Lay down not just your sins, but your doing, your attempts to earn God's favor. That's deadly because you can never earn God's favor. Lay those things down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and in him alone gloriously complete. Naaman was humbled before he was healed. He had to come to a place of broken humility before he could be healed. He had to come, he had to, come to a place where he would say, you know what? I'm nothing. I'm not better than the slave girl. I'm not better than Elisha's slave. And my money's not going to buy my healing. My money won't buy my healing. And as he is humbled, as he is broken, he is healed. Nebuchadnezzar and Naaman, two men who trusted in themselves, trusted in their self-sufficiency, their own power, their own prestige, their own fame, their own glory, their own achievements, you name it. And they said, you know what? I am awesome because of what I've done. The idol of power and success and glory, it cannot be expelled. You cannot say, okay, I have this problem. Let me just get rid of it. It must be just like every other idol in your life replaced. So how do we do that? We have to look to Jesus' example of humility. We have to look to the King of Kings who willingly gave up his rightful place in heaven, the glory that was his in heaven. We studied it in Philippians chapter 2 a year ago. We know what it looks like for Jesus to condescend to become one of us. That is the way that we can see, okay, how dare I ever say I am something when I am nothing and God is something, and yet he became nothing. He took on flesh, and he died the death of a common criminal. Uh, one hymn says, Seek not in courts, nor palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable, see your God extended on the straw. No, he didn't come and with fanfare and to a kingdom. He came to his own. His own rejected him. He came to a manger, lowly, humiliated. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to ascend on high. Christ descended low. Naaman wanted to work to earn his healing. Christ worked to offer us a healing that we could never earn. So only when we see Jesus and Jesus alone as our success, when we glory in him alone, can we replace the idol of our own glory, our own power, our own control, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29 through 31 says that God uses the tiny, the small, the weak things of the world to confound the strong and to shame the wise. God uses humble, broken people, not those who would glory in themselves. So my question to us all, 
as we've looked at all of these different idols and we come now to an idol that might seem a little bit more generic and you know, ethereal and might seem a little bit more subjective, I believe that all of us struggle with this to one degree or another. To control our own destiny, to be masters of our own fate, as that poem said. Will we, like Naaman, say at the very end, okay, I humbly go, do whatever God tells me. Will we say with Nebuchadnezzar at the end, or will, we, will it take God doing something in our lives like he did to Nebuchadnezzar? Will it take that, or will we humble ourselves now under his mighty right hand? One of the beauties of coming to the Lord's table is to remember, okay, we could never earn God's grace. We don't come here to this table deserving the work of Jesus on our behalf. Never. We come here undeserved. This is undeserved favor. We come here knowing there's nothing I could ever do to earn this. There's nothing ever I could ever do to keep this. This is a gift of God. It's a gift. Jesus did all the work. So when we are tempted to place our confidence in what we can do and who we are, let's remember that Jesus humbled himself to save us. He did it out of his love for you and for me and for the glory of the Father. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my life, my all. Let's glory in our Redeemer together and say any accomplishment that we might have is just a gift. It's not me. It's nothing I could do. And ultimately, salvation is a gift. It's nothing that I could do. It's purely Jesus, his work on the cross on our behalf. We're going to sing. As we do, we're going to prepare our hearts, and then the men are going to pass out the elements and as they do, as, as we sing before we pass these out, I just pray that we would listen to the words of these songs and reflect on the work that Jesus did on our behalf and surrender, rest in his accomplishments, not our own, in his successes, not our own, and glory in him and don't take any glory to ourselves. Father, I pray that as we do sing, you would work in us to reveal areas in our lives where we would take glory and accomplishments to ourselves, where we would say we are something when we are not. God, may we humble ourselves before you have to step in and humiliate us. And may your amazing work on the cross be what absolutely humbles us. Forbid it, Lord, that we should boast in anything that we have. We only boast in you and you alone.